Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Flossy Claude. What? Cloud? Or fl- you know there's something in there and I'm not even going to bother to unearth it. Uh, but here we are with another edition of the Food Show. An utterly unique service on radio, not just here in New Orleans, but across America, if my uh, digging around has uh, proven it to be true. I think this is the only program like this anywhere in the country. And uh, we don't do that just to, you know, say, you know, it took a day off or anything. But uh, we want you to know that. And we do some things here that are not uh, what you would find in any other radio station either. For example... Robert Lyle is here. He is the uh, artistic director of the New Orleans Opera. And here he, uh, here he is. Hi, Tom. We, and uh, that was uh, no, no fooling around and getting right to it and with a real expert. Welcome. Well, it's, it's, uh, oh, and uh, my, uh, my assistant, also known as my wife. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, that's new since the last time he was here, yeah. probably. Oh, oh okay. <clears throat> yeah. Well, okay, it now, it's a, now it's a duet. It's a <laughs> duo, yes, yes. Yeah. Welcome. How many Thank people you. are in the upcoming uh, performance of the opera? Oh, boy. Um, a big crowd? Big crowd, yeah. A chorus of about 50 and about, oh, 15 or so principals and a children's choir of about oh 17 or 18 and dancers and super supernumeraries as they are formally called <laughs> uh, the world calls them spear carriers but uh, <laughs> but you can see it's a crowd of people so it's yeah. carmen right it is carmen it is bizet's masterpiece carmen Tell, tell us about it, because, I mean, everybody hears about Carmen, but they don't really know what it is. Well, but they know some of the music. I, I dare say there's not anyone within earshot that cannot sing the Toreador song. They know the famous melody. They make up their own words, which probably uh-huh. causes Bizet to roll over in his grave. But... <laughs> It's great shower music and elevator music. You know, it is uh-huh. it is a fantastically rich musical tapestry. And it had a very interesting history in that it premiered at a theater in 1875. It premiered in Paris at a, a performance hall called the Opera Comique. Well, in English, we think of comic as related to comedy. Well, mm-hmm. opera comique in this instance simply means it is a a play, uh, a, an opera with spoken dialogue and instead of just sung throughout. And so that was considered a lesser art form at the end mm-hmm. of the 19th century. And so Carmen premiered. It had a very challenging premiere in terms of success because it is the first of what historically is recognized as the first French verismo opera. Verismo is a term, an Italian term, that is reality. 
So, in other words, instead of a stop. Wait a minute. Uh, uh, Italians and reality? Yeah, well, there you I have it, Tom. I guess it happens now and then, yeah. Yeah, uh, well. yeah it does. Um, they, they distinguished themselves with the evolution of that particular aspect of the art form of opera. And other countries began picking it up. Instead of stylized acting and essentially a concert in costume with some acting, suddenly reality was the new desirable goal. And so um, you think of works like Pagliacci, you know, the singing clown who cries, uh, who, who sings through his tears, that kind of thing is the essence of Verismo. I do that all the time. And <laughs> right, and that's just for dinner, yeah. Not only so, yeah. Uh, all of this, but uh, Pagliacci is, in fact, a shape of pasta. Getting well, back to the Italians. There, there you have it. Well, let's just say <laughs> that there is <clears throat> there is always a quest for, for theater on the stage to reflect reality. And so that's what the essence of Verismo is. So suddenly, instead of family comedy something that might be likened to earlier American Broadway, you know, largely comic plays with beautiful incidental music. People went to the Opera Comique to see the premiere of the upcoming production of Carmen, and wow, what a handful of dynamism. Carmen is a gypsy girl whose opening, whose opening aria is a self laudatory proclamation about her self and her values. It's l'amour est un oiseau rebelle. Love is a wild bird that no one can trap, that no one can capture. And and it it goes That's from That's pretty there. accurate. Yeah. Well, in reality, it certainly is. And particularly with Carmen, who's strikingly beautiful and a free spirit. Mm-hmm. She's, she represents la vie de bohème, that bohemian life of don't pin me in, don't mm-hmm. try to cage don't me. Don't fence me in. Yeah. Exactly. And so uh, the story involves a young soldier that's stationed in Seville, and he is actually from a noble family from Navarre, and he got in a knife fight at a card game and killed one of the players. And being of noble family, he was given, unfortunately, privilege. This has historically been the case. And so he was given a choice, go to prison or join the Foreign Legion. So he chose the latter, and he's been stationed in Seville. And there he encounters Carmen. And he is mesmerized, because there's certainly no girl like her in Navarre. And so uh, what we see is the fascinating interaction of proper social culture, of the gypsy lifestyle. Uh, Carmen is part of a group that smuggles arms and things like that as their lively. I was lively. about to say, is there something proper about the gypsy lifestyle? Well, not unless you exalt the stealing of chickens, So, <laughs> the, which, you know, might, might fit in comfortably with a food show. So, well, we shoved everything else in here. Why not that? Why not that? But anyway, and surrounding this story, well, a, a, a new character enters, and that is Escamillo, the Toreador, the leading Spanish Toreador. And he is truly a rock star in that culture. 
And, and, and that's one of those things that you can really get in your head and not get rid of it for a long time. Oh, yeah. It, just, it grabs you and stays there. It's a ground, grand piece. It involves the full chorus. It's electrifying music. And, you know, it's just music theater at its best. And so Carmen encounters Escamillo and is mesmerized by him. Don Jose had encountered the young soldier, had encountered Carmen and was mesmerized by her. And I think you can see where this is likely to go. And The standard yeah. unrequited love triangle, yes. There you have it. I mean, it's not like it was unique to this century. So the... Um, Anyway, it's it's a very colorful, very, very passionate story. And Doris Day should be here any minute. Well, D- Doris would be playing Michaela, the young village girl from <laughs> Navarre, who there is in are. love with Don Jose and comes and brings him letters from his mother and things like that. Carmen is in a different place. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, she... Um, sounds fascinating. It, it is a fascinating play. It is also, I might add... One of the best first opera experiences that you can have. If you've mm-hmm. never been to the opera or only been sporadically, go see Carmen. The music is powerful. The music is very famous and very beautiful. The story is very, very engaging because of first what caused its initial uh, premiere failure was the violence in it. And just the lauding the the glories of the libertine lifestyle of mm. Carmen mm. and her gypsy friends, and yeah, which sounds almost quaint now. Well, it is, <laughs> and, but particularly in a theater famous for family entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 so the plot progresses to with all of the frictions between all of the characters ultimately the triumph of Escamillo's career is he's featured as the leading toreador in the great ring in Seville and Carmen arrives on his arm and he goes into the bull ring and Don Jose has mixed in with the crowd now he's He's on the lamb. He's obviously abandoned the military, so he's a fugitive. And he grabs her and pleads with her to return with him, and she wants none of it. And so you can see the tragic ending that's coming. And so, yeah, it does not have a happy ending in that regard. Artistically, it is a very satisfying ending, knowing the nature of all of the emotions at work on the stage. But uh, people that saw it in 1875 the first time were stunned by this new style of music theater. And, and oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, and today it is either the first or the second, depending on which year you're looking at statistics, most frequently performed opera in the world. What's the other one? Uh, La Traviata. Hmm. Verdi's La Traviata. Uh And they are both just absolute masterpieces for their balance of great music, great theater, wonderful characterizations. But um, it's, in fact, I I love the fact that Tchaikovsky, everyone knows Tchaikovsky's music from The Nutcracker and from Mm -hmm. Swan Lake and his great symphonies and concerti. Um. Upon encountering a performance of Carmen, said, in 10 years, this will be the most popular opera in the world. And you know, and here, here we are over a century later, and, um, and he was right. 
did he invest in the uh, building that became the opera? No. You know, that, that's, uh, I, I, I was just a sneaky, not very good way to bring up the fact that all of this, as uh, interesting as it sounds and as um, uh, much with a, a background as we have depicted, uh, is a, a New Orleans kind of place, too. It is. It is. The, the opera company here, you know, we have a very long opera heritage. The modern company alone is enjoying its 77th season. And if you go back to our actual roots, it's 1796. Wow. But even in the modern era of the 77 years, the New Orleans Opera has produced Carmen 17 times. And not bad. They're not laying down on the job. They are not. I mean, and Carmen always draws a crowd, and people love the music of it, and they love the characters in it. So, you know, if, if you want to experiment with opera and have what I can promise you will be a fine time, then come on October 4th and 6th to the New Orleans Opera's performances of this masterpiece. That's like in the next couple of days. Yeah, it's Friday and yeah. Sunday. That's right. Did, uh, did you say earlier in this conversation that there are parts of this opera that are not sung? They are spoken. Uh-huh. Again, let okay. me reiterate. Which is really unusual for an opera, right? Well, for that's true. Now, think about early Broadway. Our... Our national art form, as it evolved at the turn of the century, was based on Viennese operetta, and that was a play with incidental music. And then, ultimately, those roles were slightly reversed, and the singing became more important than the speaking, but still, it was a play with singing. And every country has some form of that particular kind of art, which is usually lighter fare, but comedy, things of that sort, that are a very popular play, could be about, you know, full of political, current political issues, comedy of all different sorts. If you look at early television, you also see very great similarities between the evolution of the staged theater forms and people like Red Skelton and you remember the great uh, comedic improvisers. I sure do. Well, and that's... I'd like to be one of them. Well, that they had a they had a gift. Yeah, Steve Martin in the modern era, Robin oh. Williams in the modern era. You give, you toss these guys a sentence and they can improvise for 15 minutes and create an entire world. That music means that we have to take a break. When we come back, I would like to ask you a couple of questions sure. about the um, the evolution of opera circa 2019 in New Orleans. Is it growing as a popular uh, evening for people? Good. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, 260-6368. You have a question for our guest, Robert Lyle with the New Orleans Opera, uh, or just us, 2606368. You're listening to WWL 105.3 FM HD2. (laughs) 
Rendez-vous avec nous, boire, mon camarade, à vos succès anciens, à vos succès nouveaux. It's the Food Show on 105.3 FM HD2. And it's a little taste more than maybe a big taste of the opera, uh, uh, Carmen. Carmen, excuse me. Carmen. Carmen. I had it right the first time. You did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wouldn't be the first time. Anyway, it is uh, coming up in the next week or so. It's coming up Friday and Sunday. Friday and Sunday. The Mahalia Jackson Theater. Remember uh, the first time we went to an opera? Yes, it was just a couple of years ago. Uh, this is why I never travel with Tom. We had the opportunity, uh, Robert, this is a running theme on the show, but um, <laughs> that I never travel with Tom, but this is a perfect example why. We were just in Venice in the spring, just last spring, and we had the opportunity to see uh, La Traviata in Venice, oh. and Tom wanted to go home instead. <laughs> so anyway... Wow. Uh, we did see um, we did see Le Mariage de Figaro um, right. back in I think 2015, and that's the last time we went. But this sounds really uh, really interesting, and I think I would like to uh, to go ahead and brave it again. Are people doing that? Are are you seeing an incidence uh, of more people coming to the opera? Is well, it growing in you know, popularity locally? Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Essentially, I mean, consider that we have a core audience that has been attending the opera. Some people will stop me, even on the street, but certainly at any social events and things like that related to the New Orleans Opera, and say, you know, my husband and I or my wife and I have been subscribers for 50 years. And, mm. you know, we we have our box seat or we have our special place in the hall that we love, and we love to attend People will make a very game effort to bring their children to opera, and I've had plenty of instances where people say, well, we took our children to opera, and now that they have graduated from college, they don't attend as regularly as we had hoped. And I say, well, you know, it's the nursery rhyme, leave them alone, and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them (laughs) because they know what it means to attend an opera. They have the experience in mind. They're familiar and know that it is not the stereotypical dull evening, overly long and uninteresting. And But, you know, when you're at that age and you're finding your career base and you're establishing your own personal family life and things of that sort, going to events like that have a lower priority. And It's exactly as I said, as people then develop their careers and lives and come back to the things that they enjoyed when they were younger, then they join the family of the opera and they become regular attenders. Uh, But these are just as evolutionary as anything Darwin ever talked about. And so um, there is a very healthy tradition of opera in New Orleans. We very proudly claim to be the first city of opera in North America. The first documented opera was performed in the French Quarter, May 22, 1796. And it has, you know, in the 19th century, 
Opera was the art form for our city. It was the heart of Creole culture. Why? Because we were a direct pipeline culturally from Paris. And so lots of troops came to tour the New World, and they would land in New Orleans, and they would present parts of their season in some of the theaters in the French Quarter, and then they would move on to lesser places like New York City and Philadelphia and (laughs) things of that nature. So um, we played a very important role in the evolution of opera in the United States. Well, I'm from Kenna. So I didn't grow up in the opera world, and I would like to get a little bit more culture. My my mom had to wrestle us to go to Tulane Summer Lyric Theater. The opera was just, you know, way too fancy. Right. But um, do you see people like me who are interested in exploring this cultural art form um, with no familial connection or breeding or anything like that who are just sort of curious about it. Are you seeing more people who are sort of out of your core base who are getting interested in opera? Well, it it comes in steps. And what has changed that particular reality that you just described is modern technology. You know, if you wanted to learn about opera, you can get on your computer, you can go to YouTube, you can find thousands and thousands of clips of opera, either famous singers like Placido Domingo or Luciano Pavarotti or you name them. All the great Golden Age singers are represented there singing their their repertoire. But isn't that what's sort of wrong with, with things right now that you can go do that online? I mean to sit in the actual theater and to experience it the way it was back in the 1700s, Well, the real way. Thank you for putting your finger on the point that I was headed toward, and that is, yes, you can experience it through your iPad, through your iPhone, through your computer, through your home television system, through your home theater system. It is not the same. As no, sitting in the hall. No, I know. It's uh, <laughs> definitely true. That you know. panting is our big dog if he's coming Okay. Through. Well, see, he's <laughs> wanting an operatic experience, right? <laughs> but the um, it's just simply not the same as sitting no, in a concert hall with yeah. the sound of the Louisiana Philharmonic who plays for all of our performances and a grand chorus and wonderful voices mm-hmm. right there in your face. That's yeah. exhilarating. But mm-hmm. you have to work up the energy steps, and huh? dedication go. <laughs> to get there. <laughs> they got to get slightly introduced online, and then maybe they'll transfer to the real thing. Well, or a nice a nice uh, process is if you have a friend that is interested in opera and says, why don't you go with me to Carmen or to uh, Marriage of Figaro or La Traviata or whatever's playing? Then you don't feel like you're just out there alone and that you're going to be encountering people who – what I often hear in marketing focus groups and other public outreach things, I think everybody in the hall knows so much more about it than I do, then I'm uncomfortable because – It's like a wine tasting. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be asked a question about it and I can't answer it. And, And as you know, people that love intellectual things don't like to be made to feel ignorant. So, Boy, that, that has helped my career tremendously. <laughs> right. So, so um, 
you know, it, it's it's not a daunting experience. It's just musical theater. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just another avenue of uh, yeah. of an evening out. You know, um, so so have the ticket sales increased year to year, or they've plateaued they... now. In the modern era, uh, they have plateaued, uh-huh. and I think okay. it is directly a cause of the technology that we're uh, talking about. Mm-hmm. You okay. see, as, as as the traditional audiences have matured, the younger audiences have found different ways to capture their entertainment. Mm -hmm. And they can either go to Elmwood and see the Metropolitan Opera on the screen with a simulcast. That A lot of the traditional opera audiences love to do that. Mm -hmm. Or they can selectively survey the universe. I didn't know that was available. Yeah. Yeah. And it's inexpensive and it's casual. It's Saturday afternoon. So, you know... Mm -hmm. Do they do? Tell me about that. What is what is that? Well, the Metropolitan Opera about 12 years ago launched a project that they said was going to develop the new opera audience. They were Uh going to simulcast from the Metropolitan Opera House in Manhattan into movie theaters around the country. And now it's around the world. Uh And what they have found is, by and large, that even though the movie going experience is common to virtually all of American society, uh, that it was the real opera lovers that were going to it more than new audience. And mm. so I, I still maintain the best approach to learning and loving opera is to go to the theater with friends, if you wish, because it is a social event after all, mm-hmm. and in, here are great masterpieces. And then you see the visceral power of a work like Carmen or Traviata or whatever your flavor is. Mm -hmm. And then if you really like it, then you can say, okay, I'll try another opera until you Mm -hmm. reach a point where you can say, well, I like this kind of opera more than I like this kind of opera. Mm -hmm. And and that's when you're getting somewhere. Then well, then you're moving into being selective about, you know, opera buff. Yeah, exactly. Moving into an opera buff. Okay, so let me ask you this. Is this the worst? Did the worst of all worlds happen? Did the people who were opera goers decide that they preferred going to the theater instead? No, but but you you know the line. popcorn. Well, you can even take a picnic basket basket in Uh now in in the modern theaters, Uh and people are breaking out their bottles of wine and their sandwiches. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh And it's uh, not even good wine. Well, or good sandwiches. Yeah, there you have it. Um, but the um, you you know the often used phrase, "I don't drive at night." Well, if you're talking about a, a population of opera lovers that are older and they do come to the point where getting out at, at night and having to deal with traffic and things like that, then going at noon on a Saturday is very appealing. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and with casual dress and things like that. So. Is this possible that this could be dying out if people are not willing to go out at night and they haven't been replaced by a younger generation who has been turned on to the actual experience of going to the theater versus seeing it online? Well, it's not going to die out. It's been here okay. for 400 plus years. Okay. And, you okay. know, it was founded. Uh, opera is one of the art forms, only art forms that was kind of created instead of just evolved, you know, a, a group okay. of 
people in Italy in 1596 said, let's create, recreate Greek tragedy, and from that came the art form of opera. Robert Lyle is with us. He is the artistic director of, you're still that, right? Yes. You? Yeah. Uh, of the New Orleans Opera, which is, uh, if you've never experienced it before, uh, something. A unique experience. A unique experience. Yeah. And, you know, there's one thing you just, you dropped on me a, a, a few lines ago, uh, Robert, and I will ask you uh, uh, that in a moment, but okay. first, please, this. Okay. Boy, I need some lyrics here. <laughs> That's the entr'acte that leads us into the fourth act. I wish I had some. And I... uh, the uh, we're about to encounter the grand procession to the bullring in Seville, where Escamillo is going to be featured. So We are being visited right now uh, by uh, Robert Lyle. He is the uh, uh, artistic uh, acoustic, uh, excuse me, uh, artistic director of the New Orleans Opera, and we uh, we invite him to come on our program every time there's a new uh, show of the uh, or listen to, I guess, the uh, opera. It's Carmen. It's this week, and uh, hope you, uh, you hope you get into it. Before he goes, I want to ask him one or well, two more going, questions. Um, Robert, you've been around this, I guess, your whole life. So, what are your personal favorites? Well, I'm a conductor, and so I conduct our performances. I'm in the pit with the orchestra, and I'm conducting the stage. People think that you just conduct the orchestra, and the singers are kind of on their own. It's not that way at all. We are all locked in totally on each other. And so I bring a pretty long symphonic background to conducting, and then also opera, and even a lot of ballet. So... I have very wide-ranging tastes. I've conducted the standard repertory, the core, you know, 50 operas or so many times. Uh, the core at, is about 50 operas? Well, really? at, well, actually, the world core is about 120 operas. No kidding. Yeah. Well, look, there have been thousands of operas written. Hmm. Some of them don't last very long. Many of them are on library shelves. But if you're looking at Mozart's operas, Don Giovanni and, and The Marriage of Figaro and Cosi Fantute and The Magic Flute and mm -hmm. things of that sort, there's four just from one of the greatest. If you look at Puccini's operas that are so popular, La Boheme, um, Madame Butterfly, Turandot, you know, he of his 11 operas, about half a dozen of them are very highly ranked. Verdi is regarded as one of the greatest of the opera composers, wrote 29 operas, of which about 9 or 10 are really highly ranked. Aida is a very popular work. Il Trovatore, La Traviata, Rigoletto. I mean, you, you can see how this distribution of the great composers and their works are represented in the world repertory. Mm -hmm. And so uh, within, within that body, I mean, I am a great lover of Wagner, mm -hmm. and I love 
Richard Strauss, the, my favorite of the Strauss operas is Zalome, you know, the famous mm-hmm. story of the beheading of John the Baptist and the famous Dance of the Seven Veils, that, that lurid piece. Um, but it is truly a masterpiece. Um, I, Mozart is easily one of my favorite composers. I love Verdi. I love Puccini. I love Wagner, as I've said. And, but I also love new and different and unusual pieces. I can't say that they are my favorites because some of them are too new to have sunk entirely into my psyche. But, mm-hmm. uh, for example, a couple of seasons ago, we did a new opera called Dead Man Walking based on Sister Helen mm-hmm. Prejean's uh, mm-hmm. writings and the, and the movie. Mm-hmm. I think that is an important modern work. So I like to sample the universe of the repertory. Yes, I love to do the traditional pieces. This year, um, the main stage productions, as we call them, the big ones at Mahalia Jackson, are Carmen to open, and then in January, February period, Tchaikovsky's opera setting of Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. And then we'll close the main stage season with Mozart's The Magic Flute. Mm-hmm. So you've got two pieces. Really that, good selections, yeah. Well, and, and Joan of Arc is not only beautiful music, but it has a unique connection to our city. You know, mm-hmm. she is, uh, I should say, titularly a um, patron saint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a crew of Joan of Arc. We have, I just spoke at a symposium about Joan of Arc as a subject of artistic treatment. Um, so... I love the new, and I've never conducted that piece before, and it's never been produced in our city before. Hmm. So you always need a new, uh, new, new horizon. Horizon ahead of you. Yes, and here's a familiar subject. It follows very much the traditional story of her, you know, divine calling to change the destiny of France and and regain the throne for Charles the Seventh, and then uh, is captured by the English and burned at the stake. Um, so yeah, that's funny. I'm laughing. Well, I mean, it's pretty vivid it. theater, and yeah. uh, but it is a very accurate reenactment. It does, unfortunately, change history a little bit in that she, well, well she 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 is attracted to a young knight, and we know for a fact that Joan of Arc was pure and chaste, and there was no in, documented incident of that, but. Uh, it's kind of secondary to the treatment, the Tchaikovsky treatment, that captures the real basics of her mission, which she accomplished for France, and then her very tragic end. But it's magnificent music. And um, then in between, we're celebrating a work uh, which is a story of the life of Charlie Parker, the famous jazz saxophonist. And we're also doing a unique uh, collaboration with the U.S. Army that commissioned an opera called The Falling and the Rising. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I saw that. Which, you know, was based on interviews with people about their service experience and how it affected their lives. Mm-hmm. So you can see we're not just doing things where around. people sit back and say it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Yeah. You know, yeah. So... <clears throat> That's wonderful. In some, in the case of falling and rising, maybe the fat lady gets shot. But the uh, no, but the uh, the world of opera. You've asked me about 
new new experiences and what I have a, another question sure Go ahead. jump in no please well okay so if you haven't been to an opera right and you you know it's like it's like anything else you don't want to dive in from you know the the 12 foot diving board right um you maybe want to walk in the steps and and just kind of relax right. a little bit so what pieces that obviously are not on the agenda for this year but you know if i said you know i'd like to kind of go to an opera and you're thinking to yourself and you might not say it but since we're just talking I, i'd be kind of curious to hear what you'd say pieces that the real neophytes would be totally intimidated by what are the heavy duty ones out there that you really have to be really an opera buff to dig well any a, a lot of 20th century repertory is simply less familiar it's often a little more abstract or the musical language is unique to its culture and by that i'm thinking of like expressionistic music uh, of the German composers of Vienna in, you know, the first two decades of the 20th century. That kind I'm of talking th about the more familiar ones, the more familiar ones that you would recognize, you know, you say Verdi and Verdi, and yeah. somebody, you know, knows that. Of those oh, ones. Of, of those ones, okay. Uh, well, um, you know, Verdi wrote a lot about grand-scale concepts. Let me express it that way. His work was dedicated to a lot of the friction in Europe and in Italy in particular between the church and the state and nationhood. Mm -hmm. Verdi wrote during a period called the Risorgimento, and what that was, Italy until the middle of the 19th century or early parts of the 19th century was made up of ducal states. Mm -hmm. There was not a nation per se. There were all of these different estates that were ruled locally. That is at the heart of understanding one of his greatest works, Rigoletto, which is about the Duke of Mantua and his court jester. And Verdi was assisting in supporting the public interest in developing a nation. And so, so he, he wrote political pieces. He exactly and he did it by great writing great patriotic choruses and things of that sort. And he probably influenced a lot of people. Hugely so. Hugely yeah. so. So much so that he was actually elected to the Italian Senate. Mm -hmm. But but um, that's a case of just using the emotional power of something that couldn't bind us all together through the to power persuade. of art. Mm -hmm. Right. And in the hands of a master composer like Verdi, it was mm -hmm. very effective. Yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting. So, well, you know, yeah, if, if you're a history buff, you could explore yeah, any of those operas that deal with those patriotic themes and what evolved from them into the development of the Italian nation and get a little more appreciation of how universal Verdi's thinking was in terms of writing for something that is for his nation but actually reflects the desires of all mankind. Hmm. So. Well, 
whenever we are close to developing those those uh, evolutions, we'll call you. Good. And uh, <laughs> and because uh, it's always a pleasure to have you uh, on with us. Well, thank you, Tom. It's always uh, a even pleasure. Though, you know, it's we're it's the food show, and that's all it ever has been. But we can sneak a few other things in here. Little uh, culture, as my mom used culture. to say. Well, I, I, but there was something uh, that you you mentioned early today. Where do you go? Uh, there is oh uh, I I understand okay uh, there's there's one uh, aspect of this you mentioned along the way uh, how much the opera and the Creole society were connected with one another yes and uh, immediately in my what little I have of a brain uh, there was a flash that told me that when, if you don't believe that if you were to uh, uh, if you were to go to the opera, it's almost inevitable you're going to go to Galatoire's for dinner. <laughs> and I keep thinking that uh, this is, is how it's going to all be put together in the long run. Uh, Robert Lyle, he's the, he's the uh, artistic director of the New Orleans Opera, and he visits us every time they are about to do another production. And it, if you haven't done it ever in your life before, put this on your list. It's something that really will set you aside in your, your day and your week and your month and your year. It's just one of those things. Let, let me draw a little parallel, Tom, if I can, fire, because fire you, all, you all speak repeatedly about menus. And, certainly do. And you've asked me questions about the field of opera, and I can tell you it is a very rich menu. It is, it ends you with know, the, thank you. <laughs> you can pick and choose things to your taste, and the whole process, the way we put a season together, is to in fact reflect the concept of a rich menu. Well, I'm a cheese fry girl, so so um, <laughs> what sort of operas would I like? Well, any of the comedies would be a pleasure for you. Any of the more light-hearted things. Operetta, as we would call it, um, many of the greatest composers also wrote charming comic pieces and lighthearted pieces. Um, I will say this. Uh, I'm frequently uh, addressed by people that say, oh, well, I've been to the opera. I saw Phantom of the Opera or I saw... <laughs> I, or, I, or I saw Les, Les Miserables, you know. And you say, well, you're headed down. You're, you've, you've, you're walking through the right door, <laughs> you know. Um, and I don't demean that or belittle it at all. It's just that I'm also asked questions like, well, you know, they sing the whole time in Phantom of the Opera. So is that an opera or is it a musical? This is blasphemy, but I I didn't really I don't really get Andrew Lloyd Webber. I understand that that is going to offend a lot uh, of people, but I don't. Well, that's so. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm I'm in a chorus where we just did that. Yeah. Uh, this this yeah. past week. Oh, okay. Is what is the what is the modern Broadway show that's associated with La Boheme? Oh, Rent. Rent. Okay. Okay. Yeah. To me, that that one. <laughs> It's kind of heavy rock, and so it has bears no musical relationship. The bastardization of La Boheme, is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, to give you you a specific example of some very complete bastardization would be that when Mimi dies at the end of Puccini's great opera, it is heart-wrenching and truly tragic. 
in our empathy and sympathy and identification. When Mimi dies in rent, she closes her eyes and everyone is surrounding the table and she pops up and says, I'm back. Well, we don't do that much in opera. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if you've got a dead soprano on the stage, you just kind of move on. <laughs> okay. Well, I think I'm going to stick with the, uh, the, the Mozart light ones. Well, and, and well, wade my way in. Wait, smart enough to get that's into. all right. You find yourself in deeper waters eventually, and you'll love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really did enjoy the one that uh, that I went to. I wanted to go to Don Giovanni last year. Was it last year? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and for some reason we just didn't go, but well, I, I would like to do that one. That's a lot of people's favorite opera. It's great, great music and a very traditional story. You know the. The uh, the rake, the, the the seducer of women, yeah. and that kind of thing, who comes to a tragic end, but it's all pretty theatrical ending too. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime you the stage opens up and people are drawn down into hell, it's at least different than let's say <laughs> it's a network, kind of network TV, <laughs> right? <laughs> so. Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us. Well, thank you. You're always welcome. I I enjoy being on your show. Thank you very much. It's always fun to talk about an art form that I love so much. There you go. Uh, Robert Lyle, he's the artistic director of the opera. And uh, really, at some time in your life, you just got to do that. You just got to do it. Well, it's just kind of such a it's such a highbrow thing. I think that people are really easily intimidated by it, and I think that people say that if you love opera, you love it, and it's it's one of those things that is absolutely a dichotomy. You either love it or you hate it. Well, there is a mid ground, but let me let me add one little qualifier, and that is. One of the things that makes people think that it is either highbrow or remote from them is that often we sing in foreign languages. However, we also project simultaneously the translation in simple, clear English above the stage. So it's like watching a foreign film with subtitles. So you're hearing the music, and yet at the same time you are seeing every word that is sung. So that should not be off-putting because, you know, people would used to say, well, I don't know any Italian or any French or German or whatever. You don't have to. You just come and watch the performance and you will be... Well, you know, it's kind of like being on an airplane and the person in front of you is watching a different movie. Right. And you can get the idea from just watching it without having the headsets on. That's right. You know what I mean? It's like you... That's right. The actions speak loudly enough. Yeah, sure. It's a a sensory experience for sure, but it it involves... uh, It's a thinking. It's a thinking thing. Right. Right. Yeah. So I guess I guess you kind of have to like to do that in order to enjoy the opera. Let's hope there's still a few people out there. Like you can that. develop it from nothing. You know, you right. just pay attention, and there you are. Okay. Well, it's the food show. This is Tom Fitzmaurice. Thank uh, you, Robert. Thank you. And okay. uh, we uh, talk about food here, but every now and then we like uh, moving off onto the sidelines. And uh, you know, you don't have. There are days I know you've had them, where you don't. Uh, you don't have anything to sate your appetites if you don't know it. And uh, 
What you need you is might want to go like do this. something instead of going out to dinner. Yeah, there you there go. You that, go. Was, that, so was, that was what I was trying to yes, say. Yes, that's what I'm here for, time to get into your brain and translate yeah. and then spit it out. That's right. And uh, and I'm also going to uh, introduce the idea of New Orleans hamburger and seafood ah. since we have a few minutes at the top of the hour here. New Orleans hamburger and seafood. Do you want to do it? Oh, you started in on it, so you okay. may as well uh, finish it. New Orleans Hamburger and Seafood has a great menu of hamburgers. It's pretty extensive. You can choose from a lot of different uh, ways to uh, to dress a burger. They uh, have crispy, not crispy, but uh, char-grilled on the outside and uh, juicy on the inside burgers. You can also get some seafood, hence the name New Orleans Hamburger and Seafood. It is light, crispy, delicious, cooked to order. Comes to your table hot, golden brown. You can get it spice-alicious if you ask. It comes on a platter or on a poor boy. They have wonderful New Orleans specialties, good salads, all kinds of, pretty much the whole gamut of New Orleans-style food at New Orleans Hamburger and Seafood. And now they have Tom's favorite, char-grilled oysters. Oh, gosh, what a thought. Char-grilled oysters at any of the New Orleans hamburger and seafood locations. There are 10 around town. Go see them. You'll, you'll definitely have a wonderful experience there. I also want to mention something else before we get to the top of the hour. Uh, next Thursday, the 10th of October. I cannot believe we're in October already. Funny, isn't it? I know. It's just, it's shocking how fast the year has gone. But uh, next Thursday, the 10th of October, is a benefit for the Four Kids Foundation, which is a golf based charity that uh, raises money for children's outreach, basically. And they have an event at the Chateau Country Club. It's called the Kenner Wine and Food Event. And it is uh, $85. You can get tickets. Uh, it's at Chateau Golf and Country Club. It's October 10th for the Four Kids Foundation, the ninth annual Kenner Wine and Food event. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.